Mm-hmm. I think everybody's a creative genius. Sure. Right? That'll you know, work. not everybody is artistic in the same way that not everybody is musical, but everybody's a creative genius. If you have ever solved a problem differently than anybody else has solved the problem, congratulations, you're a creative genius. <laughs> um, here's your badge. Hey, hey, you're at the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I'm Linda Sievertson, and today here on this last day of August is my annual birthday show. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about how old I am, but if you were here last year, you know I am a big fan of the ancient Sanskrit tradition of giving gifts on your birthday. Last year, I created an opt-in over at bookmama.com where you could and still can get my writer's gift pack for signing up for my semi-monthly newsletter, which includes a detailed book proposal template. But this year... As I thought about what I could gift you that would provide the most value, I remembered something Danielle Laporte wrote in Your Big Beautiful Book Plan, our book proposal program. In it, Dee talked about how whenever you go to write, you're never truly starting from scratch. Your life is full of content. Part of your book or speech or product is hidden in plain sight in your client session audio files or your past blog interviews, those scandalous email chains, your coffee shop convos, or that one post that went viral. Whatever the case may be, when you traipse through the treasure trove that is your life, you can capture and conquer. And you guys, this advice of hers really works. Part of the reason why my beautiful writer's book and my book on time debt and my divorce memoir are taking so long to release, besides the fact that I keep rescuing and potty training puppies, is that I have been unearthing so much content from my past, even from scandalous email chains. When you do this, when you take a deep dive to mine your life, your books can feel never-ending. They're not, by the way, but hopefully they are far more valuable and timeless for all that diving. But my point is that when I sat down to plan this show, I asked myself what gift I had for you that wasn't already earmarked for those books. And here's what I came up with that I'm really excited about. It was so obvious I had to laugh. Some of my favorite content ever in the form of publishing expert interviews has been right under my nose. It's been living over at the Beautiful Writers Group, which is where this podcast originated. What I offer this membership community made up of writers at all levels for $25 a month is community and support and resources and accountability in their otherwise often isolated writing lives. It's fun. And much like this podcast, one of the things we offer is in-depth interviews. They're a little more casual than these, and they're different in that they go deeper into specific topics for working writers, like finding beta readers, what publishing meetings and auctions look and feel like, how to get negative reviews off of Amazon, and other book marketing tactics. We cover things like writing about family members, legalities, and how to best use humor to funny up your text. We recently interviewed one of the top audiobook narrators in the world about everything you could want to know about recording your story. I've never shared these conversations because having access to the library of interviews is a perk of membership. But it occurred to me that excerpting some of these chats for you would be a birthday win-win, meaning I finally get to share this group with you that means so much to me. And you can experience a taste of some of it free of charge. Here's how it's going to flow. Rather than break the interviews up by topic, as I've done for both of the best of episodes of this podcast, I'm going to separate what you're about to hear by guest. I wish I had the time to excerpt everyone, but here's what I've got for you right now. 
We'll start off with bits of my chat with Samantha Bennett, the author of Get It Done and Start Right Where You Are. You can find Sam over at the Organized Artists Company and in the Beautiful Writers Group, where she has started to do some of our interviews and joins me every month in the Q&A calls, which is amazing because Sam always has the most soulful, tear-jerking, butt-kicking advice. Here's what she had to say when she first came on as a guest on Book Tour about what it feels like to get her dream cover blurb. Here we go. I'm going to share this quote from Seth Godin with everybody. Seth says about Get It Done, an instant classic, essential reading for anyone who wants to make a ruckus. How did that feel when you got that nice little testimonial from Seth? I'm still not over it. I mean, (laughs) it's like the cutest boy in high school walks past your locker. Like, I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) I freaked out. I freaked out. Yeah, um, I bet. And I'm still kind of freaking out about it. And I'll tell you, too, I had a session with my coach not too long after that happened. And we're talking, and she goes, what's going on? And I was like, I don't know, nothing. And she's like, something happened. Did a client say something to you? Do you have a problem with your family? What's going on? I'm like, nothing. I don't know what you're saying. Everything's fine. She's like, something has happened, and you have to tell me what it is. And I was like, gosh, um, I don't know. I guess I got this quote from Seth Godin, and it's kind of freaking me out. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, wow, what if everybody likes the book as much as Seth Godin likes the book? Yeah. And she goes, oh, you got outed. <gasps> oh. And I was like, what? yeah, I got outed. And she's a really good coach. And I was so glad I was working with her because that visibility piece, like dealing with that is huge, is huge. And I'm so glad I had somebody to sort of call me on my crap and help me process it because otherwise this is where you get that upper limit problem and I guarantee you I would have found a way to sabotage that launch. Remind me how that happened. I don't know because I had some friends from my Hollywood days who were willing to write a blurb, you know, Ed O'Neill and Rachel Dratch and Keegan-Michael Key. Yeah, Yeah. Keegan-Michael Key wrote the foreword for me and so a bunch of my Second City and comedy friends were willing to do that but they were like, okay, other than your actor friends... (laughs) Who would you like to approach for a blurb? And I said, I don't know who's available. Jesus, Seth Godin, Daniel Pink. Like that was my list. Jesus, Seth Godin, Daniel Pink. No. (laughs) And the next thing I knew, they had come back with that quote. I, I, I still don't know how it happened. I think you're going to enjoy Sam's thoughts on genius and vanquishing perfectionism. Then she shares a few of her best tricks for time management and decision wrangling. I think everybody's a creative genius. Sure. Right? You know, not everybody's artistic in the same way that not everybody is musical, but everybody's a creative genius. But the thing about being a creative genius, the thing about getting your creative work out into the world is that there's no right way. Right. There's no the way. So what I love is about really helping people tap into their own natural creative rhythms, helping them notice that they actually already have organizational systems in place. I love the video on your website about the pain of procrastination and Mm. about how procrastination hurts your heart, it hurts your self-esteem, it hurts your relationships. And really, this is chapter one of Get It Done as well. Can you speak to us? Because this is a group, the number one question that Danielle and I get every single time in our Q&A monthly calls is, how do I find the time? How do I find the time? 
And Danielle and I have a little bit different ways of looking at that. She is much more sort of, you got to make the time. She's like, no BS about it. And I am a little more codependent, like, oh, I feel your pain. You know, I'm the one who had 60 all-nighters in the year that my husband left. Where do you fit on that scale? Probably somewhere right in the, between the two of you. Actually, because <laughs> I definitely feel like I kind of got to call bullshit just because everybody gets the same 24 hours. Sure. Nobody gets more time than you get or than I get or than somebody else gets. Yeah. So that illusion of like, I just don't have the time. No, you do have the time. You're just spending it on other things. So to get really real with yourself about how you're spending your time and what's really important to you and where you let other people hijack your agenda and where you let your need to be loved and approved of and have everybody think that you're a great neighbor or a great mom or a great whatever because you're sacrificing. Not that that's my issue or anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) No way, Jose. No, no, my need to be liked and appreciated doesn't show up at all in my life, but, uh, you know, to really get real with yourself about that. But on the other hand, I get it. You know, we are really busy and we are trying to do a million things. So my whole thing, and it's where Get It Done gets its subtitle, is 15 minutes a day. I, I did all... read that. It's from procrastination oh. to creative genius in 15 minutes a day. That 15 minutes is way more powerful than people think, right? Oh my gosh. So if you all are struggling with the time management thing, take the pledge with me right now. I've got mine like a Girl Scout. Okay, me too. Like, you know, three fingers up like a Girl Scout. Cause okay, me too. <laughs> okay. Um, on my honor, I will try. So on my honor, I will try. 15 minutes a day, every single day, on the projects that matter most to you and your heart, before you check your email, before you, <laughs> you check, check your, your email, email, before you check wow. your email, that's 15 okay. minutes a day on the projects that matter most to you. I am telling you, the amount you can get done in 15 minutes is astonishing. The amount you can get done in 15 minutes a day every day for a week, a month, a year, six years. I've had people finish their dissertations. I've had people finish memoirs. I've had people finish screenplays and musicals and all kinds of blogging every day, making a video every day. It's amazing how productive you can get. God, as you're about to hear, I laughed my butt off while interviewing Harrison Scott Key. He came on to talk about his wickedly funny memoir, The World's Largest Man, a true story about what it's like to be related to insane people from Mississippi, (laughs) which won the Thurber Prize for American Humor. He holds an MFA in creative nonfiction and a PhD in playwriting and teaches writing in Savannah, Georgia. And he has a new memoir coming out this November. So he has lots and lots to share with us about funnying up your text and making it more digestible for family members you're going to have to share meals with after publication. A little warning, in the first bit, he talks about writing about his wife, and we get a tad explicit. So you're going to want to turn down the volume around the kiddos. Then I ask him if comedic writing is easy or difficult for him. I'm always getting a little close to the edge, saying something that could be taken the wrong way, or that maybe, especially when I'm talking about sexual matters, or <laughs> about nudity or genitals, or when I'm revealing information about her. Like for example, when I was writing the chapter about the birth of our first child, it gets pretty personal, yeah. where I'm describing her body parts. Yeah. Very- <laughs> 
at a very, very stressed time. And so every now and then when I would write something that was very revealing before it got put in a magazine, not the book, but in magazines, I would say, hey, you might want to read this story before I put it up online, before I put it on Facebook, just so you know what your friends are going to be messaging you about. And she'd read it. She'd be like, oh, gosh, that's a little much. And every now and then, maybe one time out of 10, I would tone it back a little bit. But I'm pretty good at sort of knowing how she would read it. She's a little angel on my shoulder of yeah. like, what can I get away with saying? Is that too much? Is that? Mm-hmm. And, and in some ways, when I say too much in the story, I have found a way to then come back as the writer and say, I know I shouldn't have said that just now. Which is my way of saying to my wife, like, sorry, babe, I didn't mean to talk about your vagina like that. I just did it right here. I just said vagina. I'm so sorry. Oh, you think women don't talk about their vaginas? I mean, I can't remember a writing retreat where we didn't have a whole conversation about vaginas. As a matter of fact, Danielle Laporte and I got in a conversation about vaginas right here on one of these calls. I feel so uncomfortable now. Um, (laughs) My question to you is, do you talk about penises? (laughs) Oh, not as often. Okay, so that's my point. I don't know if I even have a license to talk about the vagina. (laughs) Um, Although now that I have a book, I'm not sure it matters. When you realize that you are surrounded by the richest material you'll ever find as a writer, it's a gift. Some people have to go to Afghanistan or go to the farthest reaches of the world to find great material, and I grew up with it, so that was a gift because I hate to travel anyway. But once I really started working on creative nonfiction and once I sort of left playwriting behind and decided I really just needed to start writing essays and stories about my life and my family. Once I started doing that, just spending an hour with my parents. Oh gosh, enough material for an essay and you know, it's sort of like hanging out with the Seinfeld parents from the show. Oh, are you serious? Just the way they would like the banter. like they would fight, but they wouldn't really, it's not, it wasn't like mean fighting, but the yeah. things that they would disagree about or the things that my dad would say, <laughs> you know, the way my mom would all, like at least a dozen times I would be sitting in the kitchen with my mom and she would, I'm sort of the daughter she never had, you yeah. know, because, you know, I can talk about my feelings and she right. really likes to talk about her feelings. And right. So we'd be sitting there in the kitchen, you know, and she's like, was I a good mother? Did you have a happy childhood? You know, like, how do you answer that? Like, right. of course you have to say yes or she'll cry. <laughs> so that's one side of the coin is that it's just, it's easy to write this stuff when it's happening all around you. The hard side is, A, you have to train your ears to hear that it's happening around yeah. you. And then you have to find out how to sort of curate that conversation for the page and how to shape it and where to start it and where to end it and how to, I mean, you're taking what's this sort of snapshot from real life, but then you have to shape it and you're not completely transforming it. You're not inventing the truth, but you are deciding where do you stop writing the conversation? Because, you know, she and I on those dozen times probably talked for 30 minutes. Well, this thing that I wrote in the prologue is only two pages long. It's obviously not a 30 minute conversation. So learning how to shape that, shape that dialogue and make it funny and end on a high point that took 10 years to do. I tell people, you know, it took me 10 years to write the memoir, um, but nine and a half of that was just learning how to be funny. The other six months was just writing the stories down. It was oh the learning gosh. to be funny part that took forever. It's so hard to cut these interviews down, and everything out of Harrison's mouth feels priceless to me. 
But I think this next part is especially useful about the years of grind he has put in that we all have to put in. This might ease your stress if you're feeling like you're all alone in the churning out significant amounts of crap stage of your writing career. Talk to me about writing for 10 years. Can you give us more specifics? Did you throw away 500 pages? Did you start over 17 times? Did you figure out the beginning after you finished the end? I mean, what did that look like? It was awful. It it looked like (laughs) watching a large land mammal give birth. That's what it looked like. It was terrible. It looks like getting up at 5 a.m. every day for 10 years. It looks like sadness and depression and throwing everything out. It looks like starting over a hundred times, not just oh, yeah. 10. Oh, yeah. Um, Ditto. And that what looks like, like when people think of writing a book, what they think of is you go, hmm, I want to write a book. What should I write about? I think I'll write about oranges. And then you sit down at your computer for a few hours every day and maybe for eight or nine hours on some days and you write your book about oranges. And every now and then you pull paper out of the typewriter and you ball it up and throw it on the floor, but you keep going. And eventually you have a big stack of paper and that you send it to an agent somewhere and eventually you have a book. That's what they think of when they think of writing a book, which is really mostly like the last maybe 10 to 25% of the process. The first 90 to 75% of the process is the standing around the kitchen asking your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife what you should write about and what do they think about that other thing you wrote and did they read that and why won't that magazine answer your submission query and, um, you know, why won't any of the agents respond? I mean, it's just a lot of trial and error. It looks like writing a book looks like me going to Barnes & Noble. Like, as my students say, they want to know, like, what does it look like to write a book? What is it like? And I tell them that it's you stare at your screen for about four hours <laughs> and then you go, and then you and you close it and you go to work. Yeah. And the next day you stare at your screen for a couple minutes and then you check Facebook for four hours and then you go to work. <laughs> the next day you just read articles about writing books for about yeah. four hours and then you go to work. The next day you might actually go to Barnes and Noble and you go to the section in my case memoir and look at all the great memoirs and you read the first. 10 pages of each one. It takes you eight hours to do this just to see, like, what does a freaking memoir sound like at the beginning anyway? How do these people do it? So you do that. You do that for a couple of days. And then you go back and try and write. You might write, you know, a good paragraph. You might write, I wrote a 25,000 word chapter in one week. And it was terrible. Yeah. And I've never used it in anything. It was fun when it was happening. Right. But it's God. sort of like finding love. Your situation with being engaged and how long it took you to get to this very happy place yeah. in your life yeah. is exactly like writing a book. Think about yeah. all those failed relationships. Like every relationship you had <laughs> up until this last one was failed. Oh, God, yes. All of them. And so that's how it is with the book. Think of all the people that you've dated and that I've dated before I got married. Those were all like my failed books, uh, things that I started that you hope would work out. And, you know, just like with some relationships, by the second date, you know it's going nowhere, but you sort of coast along for a couple months because you'd like somebody to go to parties with. Same is true of books. You start your book and about 10 pages in, you're like, this really sucks. But you know what? I'm just going to keep writing this terrible, sucky book for another (laughs) few weeks before I get the courage enough to write a less sucky book. That's exactly what it's like. It's terrible. It's just Going yeah. and going and going until you finally sort of hit your groove. Yeah. And, you, and it's very bumpy. And you hit your groove in a lot of ways. You hit it by 
getting people to bite on some stories in magazines and newspapers and blogs and websites. When you're know, sending work out there is exhausting and takes a lot of work. But when somebody wants to publish a story or when yeah. somebody asks you to do a guest post on a blog or asks you to write for the local shelter magazine in your town, those are little ways of finding your voice and sort of getting yeah. into a rhythm and seeing what people like about what you're doing what people are responding to, and you take that, those small successes, and you just keep building and building, and eventually you have three or four or five stories out there. Or you may have a good book idea, and you just keep going with it, and you have yeah. to really enjoy just sitting down and trying to write some crap. That's what you have to, you just have to and like. And in it. the meantime, while you're writing that crap, and you're not yet getting those wins, or maybe you have some wins, but you've been working on that one piece of crap for maybe you're in the eighth year, so you're on your mile 23 of your 26-mile marathon, the people around you might think you look like an addict. That's true. Well, you have to have a loving spouse, a loving (laughs) partner who sort of gets, it also is sort of your hobby. You have to realize and sort of not get your feelings hurt when the world looks at what you do like a hobby. Yeah. And it's sort of like you're tinkering in the garage. And they're just like, oh, he's out there just there working he goes again. Camaro. And you have to remember that what you're doing is going to look not stupid, but it'll look like a hobby. It'll look frivolous. It'll look like my other friends like to hunt or fish or ski or play tennis. Yeah. Well, what I do is I tinker around on a computer with a book. And you have to <laughs> not get your feelings hurt when people treat it that way. But then when you start to get a couple of stories published or when you get an agent there really becomes a moment where all of a sudden it switches and everybody realizes that you weren't just putting a new carburetor in the old Camaro in the garage. You're actually building a new car that nobody had seen before. And it's really great to see people's respect. Yeah, they um, totally shift. I've had so many cases where like my best friend's father who thought I was just an airhead and he wasn't really nice to me. And then I published my first book and he was like, Man, that Linda is just so smart. And then he wanted me to work on a book with him. I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, complete turnaround. No, that's true. And I think it should give listeners encouragement that that moment, that moment is not what you're looking for. But when it happens, that's a nice validation. You know, I have a lot of friends here in Savannah who've been very sweet and over the years have been nice enough to say, well, how's the book going? And when they would see me at Starbucks every morning at 530, or they would go through the drive through and look through the window and see me sitting there on a very cold Monday morning when it was rainy or something, that they would sort of get the picture and be like, oh, I guess he's serious about this. And they were nice enough to ask how the book is going. But when it, you finally get the book deal, it's not even real when you get a book deal because right. it hasn't come out yet. For me, the real turnaround has been when people have texted me or found me on Facebook or on Twitter when they're friends and they're like, hey, where can I get your book? And when I can just be like, you know, you just can Google it. I mean, it's everywhere. It's at all these bookstores in town. It's at Amazon or Barnes and Noble. And then, and they're like, oh, like you're a writer? <laughs> like, even though they've known that for 10, 15, 20 years, that's a nice confirmation of like, okay, I'm not just tinkering with the Camaro. I've invented something new here. Ever dream about quitting your day job to write? That's what my next guest, Janice McLeod, author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, Paris Letters, did before her life became something of a fairy tale. She was a junk mail writer, a good one, a busy one. You know all those direct TV and AT&T letters you get? Yeah, she wrote those. But then she devised an exit strategy to finance her own sabbatical. 
If you're suddenly boxing up your desk now ready to make a break for it, not so fast. There was a method to her madness that will leave you empowered instead of impoverished. Let's tell people what your day job was and why it was so important to you to get the hell out of Dodge, so to speak. Yes, very good, because people think the dream is to just quit your day job and write. But then what happens if you don't prepare for it is you go right into financial strife and worry, which is another block to writing. So I didn't <laughs> right. want that to happen. Right. So I worked in advertising as a copywriter. Thank God, because it did teach me actually how to write. I was getting paid to learn the skills of writing and to be professional and to not be so precious with words and just training on the job. So I did that for a very long time. And you were and fast, right? I mean, your deadlines were pretty intense. They were intense and they kept getting more intense. Can you give us the an world... example? Like you have a staff meeting in the morning and what kind of crap are they throwing at you? <laughs> well, oh, there would oh. be probably between 30 and 50 jobs on the go. What? Yeah, it sounds crazy, but they're all at different stages. So there's a whole series of postcards that have to go out. And then there's a whole series of emails. And then there's a whole series of banner ads. And then a whole series of direct mail. There was a ton of direct mail. All of that advertising that contributes to the noise of your life, that was me. That was me. You You mean like like when I get home and I get the direct TV thing that says, we want you back. That was you. (laughs) You wrote that (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And imagine any big business. I wrote for them. I did it all. And if you didn't catch what I was writing to you in the mail, you caught it online. And if you didn't catch it online, somebody was going to call you and tell you about it. Did you ever have nightmares? Did you ever wake up in the middle of the night just seeing the ads running amok like Harry Potter's letters through the mail slot just never ending? (laughs) Yes, I did. And I think I even had that actual dream, except they were did more really? letters. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I used to have crazy. that dream in grade school for math. So I would wake up in the middle of the night and the math numbers on the chalkboard were expanding and getting bigger and bigger. And then I was stuck <laughs> in a hallway with the numbers and they went to infinity and I was trying to get out of the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> and you couldn't, and you were naked. <laughs> the principal was after you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it just gets worse and worse, yeah, waking up in a cold sweat, when you could sleep at all, right? which is another right. thing. There was like insomnia instead of headlines going to bed at night, and how am I going to solve that client comment? So I had to quit because yeah. I couldn't do that. That's not, that's, I wasn't built for that, Linda. I was yeah. not built for that. I can tell that about you because you're pretty freaking funny, so you were probably like going psycho. Oh, yeah. And every funny line I wrote, they would cut. You know, somebody would cut it. It was always, I was too juvenile for the job. I asked Janice to put herself back at that lunch table at work where she and her coworkers tried to figure out just how much a person needs to have in the bank before they bail on their life for a year to travel. One of my colleagues said, well... Well, one just said a million dollars. That was her, like, goal. A million bucks. Oh, good luck. But that wasn't, that was just a, it's so astronomical in her mind. Uh, But my one coworker said, well, a hundred dollars. If you spend a hundred dollars a day, then you have to save a hundred dollars a day. And Mm -hmm. then when you quit your job, then you just 
use that hundred dollars a day. And though I didn't know how much I spent in a day, if you right. divided all up my rent and all my bills divided by thirty days in the month, I mean I didn't know any of that. Right. But I right. did think a hundred dollars a day, that's easy math. Big fan <laughs> of easy math. I mean I can do that. I right. can multiply anything by a hundred sure, really sure. quickly. <laughs> I know. I'm total genius. This is why I'm a writer and not a mathematician. Yeah, right. So I started. I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And it was easy because if you think of your salary and divide that by the day, then when somebody says, let's go out for dinner, you really think, no, I'd rather have that money in my $100 a day account. You're not worth it to me. Right. sit and have another bland veggie burger in some loud restaurant that I never liked. And I'm not really a big fan of you anyway. So, <laughs> so it gets you really clear really fast about what your priorities are. Yes. And shopping, I mean, I don't care if it's on sale. I'd rather have that money in my account, my yeah. $100 a day account. So you looked at it. Thing. This is your freedom account. Yes. Okay. Yeah, for sure. So that's how I started. And I got rid of my TV. I love TV. But what I did is I ended up spending my time listing things on Craigslist instead of watching TV. Sure, sure. I would watch Scrubs. Like, it was on every other channel. And I would watch an episode, like, for the fourth time. Oh, yeah, you had to get rid of that TV. (laughs) What am I doing? Only because it's on? No, no, no. This isn't going to get me where I want to go. And where I wanted to go was away from my job. I hadn't even thought really hard about travel yet, but I thought away from here is my goal. Uh-huh. So $100 a day, it all started with that. And just uh-huh. every day, working on that $100 a day. And how long? Obviously, I know you and I've read your books twice because I love it so much. So I know the story, but how long did it take to get enough to leave? Well, this was a year-long project. Now, I wasn't a complete financial slump, okay? I had saved up some money because, I mean, I watch Oprah. I listen to Susie Orman. I'm not... <laughs> Completely inept financially, <laughs> right, right. but this hundred dollars a day was where it really accelerated. Yeah, it accelerated, and then by the end of that year, I quit my job. I quit right before Christmas. It was mm. the best Christmas present ever. In this part of our chat, Janice is explaining how she started painting letters, and in kind of the opposite of what she'd done as a junk mail creator. For a fee, she started mailing these beautiful handmade airmailed letters from Paris all around the world. She had subscribers through Etsy. And this afforded her the time to continue to travel and to write her book. I was trying to make money in order to survive in daily life, but also buy myself time, future time, to write the book. Mm. Okay, because the book takes a lot longer. That's a lot of pages, and the letters were only one page a month. And I would do that and try to get a cushion of cash together while I was plugging away on this manuscript. Right. And so that's how I do it. Buy myself future time so that I can do the project. And then by the time that money runs out, you know, I figured out another way to buy future time. Or, Or the royalty check comes in at that point. Right. And that buys me more future time. Uh And so hopefully 
my plan is that by the time I retire, I got plenty of future time in the bank. There's also a value system that has to be adopted if you're going to do this. I want to be a writer more than I want some designer clothes. Mm. I yeah, want I to be a writer yeah. more than I want a fancy car. Mm-hmm. I want to be a writer more than spending a lot of money in restaurants I don't even really like. And I just say yes because yes is lazy, easy. I just want to be a writer more. So some things get put to the wayside. Lastly, I was shocked to learn this piece of book selling intel from Janice that I had never heard in a lifetime spent obsessed with this industry. This was total news to me. I had never heard before that booksellers wouldn't distribute a book until they approved the cover. So can you talk about this? Because I love this post where you're showing all the different covers that you painted for your book. I mean, I'm so happy with the one that they chose. But this is a crazy little system that you have alerted us to. Oh, it's so weird. And I didn't know about it myself. So how it worked was I gave a bunch of art to the publisher and they had a book designer who made some different cover options. And of course, every time that they approved it, they showed it to me and I was like, I love it. Great. (laughs) Because book covers are not actually my do. Okay. The inside part is what I do. Right. So then they would come back and say, oh, no, certain bookseller didn't approve it. So here's another one that we did. And we all like it. And we think it's great. And then I would look at it and say, great. I love it, too. Wonderful. Talented folks. Yeah. And they would come back to me later and say, oh, that one wasn't approved. So they what are they talking it. about? Like Barnes & Noble? Yep. What? Yeah. I have never heard this before in 20 years in yeah. the publishing world. But it makes sense. They're all trying to sell something. Yep. And if it's not getting past somebody who has seen thousands of covers, yeah. then yeah. that's feedback, right? Like, I'm not going to look at that. This is my copywriting training happening, too, because everything was looked at. And all kinds of stuff was thrown in the trash because it yeah. wasn't this or it wasn't that. Mm-hmm. So when somebody like Barnes & Noble says, no, that's not a good enough cover, I mean, I do take that feedback, and I don't take it personally. I take it as like, got it. I want that book in Barnes & Noble. I'm going to keep going. We're going to keep doing this thing until it gets in there. And then finally, the original art on the cover of uh, Paris Letters is a bridge. Okay, there's a bridge. Right. But the original one didn't have an Eiffel Tower in it. And so I took one of my Eiffel Tower letters, and I (laughs) literally, with my scissors, cut the Eiffel Tower out, Mm -mm. and I glued it onto the bridge picture (laughs) and scanned it in, and they used that, and then it got approved. No kidding. And even now, I mean, I looked at this just the other day, and there it is, you know, warts and all, (laughs) glue everywhere. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, it's so beautiful. Do you think that the cover is part of why the book became a New York Times bestseller? I think the cover helped. I do too. Because they put it, they promised a pretty cover, and it also had a nice texture to it. The paper it does. It does. You can't put it down. First of all, you have to pick it up. It's so beautiful. It's such a piece of art that when you see the book, you have to pick it up. And then you're treated to the texture of it. It just feels yeah. so delicious. It's so artsy. 
Yeah, it really, they did a great job. My publisher, Sourcebooks, they did a great job, and I was so very happy with how it all laid out in the end. So I think that was part of it. I think that what made it a bestseller was that it was a good book. Oh, for sure. And this lesson I got from you, Linda, when I signed up for the Carmel Retreat, you had sent a PDF to kind of go through and study before arriving at the right. retreat. And that was the initial big, beautiful book plan. Right, okay, right. That was, that was called Winning Book Proposal back then. It was just me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I read it, and there were these interviews you had with authors and agents and publishers. And one of them, I'm not sure which one, said, here's how to write a great book. First, you have to write a great book. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, I know. Everybody's working on, like, how do I promote it? How, how do, do I, I market it, right? And how do I market You know what? First, write a good book. You may know my longtime dear friend, Ariel Ford, through one of her 10 books, of which her international bestseller, The Soulmate Secret, is one of the books I recommend most to my friends who are searching for love. She's also been a literary agent and a top book publicist who had 12 number one New York Times placements back when she publicized authors. My sister Carol Allen and I taped an episode of this show with Ariel in March of this year when her late sister Debbie Ford's final book was released. But when Ariel came into the BWG, it was for our expert series. She was on tour for Inspirations, Love by Design. It's an adult coloring book. And Ariel put her agent hat back on that day and shared tips with us about what to look for in an agent and what to ask them on the phone or in person. But for this snippet, we're going woo as she shares her secret sauce for connecting with the unified field where she says there isn't any time and you're already connected to every book and agent and publisher of your dreams. The reason why the movie and the book The Secret doesn't work for most people is because they left out the secret sauce. And the secret sauce is you have to be able to feel in every cell of your body that what you've asked for is already yours. Mm. So I'll explain how this works. In quantum science, there are a couple of proven things. There's a thing called the unified field. And in the unified field, there is no time. There's no past. There's no future. There is just the now moment, part one. Part two is, in the unified field, we are already connected to everything and everybody. So knowing that you're already connected to everything and everybody, and there's only the now moment, whatever your desire is, whether the desire is for a mate or for a book or a new career or a little black dress, whatever that desire is, on the unseen plane, you are already connected to that. And when you can get into the knowingness of that, that something's not missing, the car's not missing, the job's not missing, the book's not missing, when you can get into that it's already yours, then it will come to you faster in the 3D world. On the soulmate side, I call this love before first sight. Mm. So six months before Brian and I met in the physical world, I was talking to him every single day. Yeah. I didn't know his name. I didn't know where he was. I didn't know what day I was going to physically meet him. But on the moment that we met, we recognized each other because we were already in relationship. Yeah. Yeah. He's told me about that, how yeah. he knew instantly. It was just like, oh, finally, you're here. Yeah. And so the other part of that is, is that the secret teaches you to do visualizations. 
And visualizations don't work. And the reason they don't work is because they happen in your head. They're pretty <laughs> in your head. Yeah. So let's say you want a new blue convertible BMW. No, wait, can we make it with an agent? Because most people okay, on this call are going to want agents. Okay, so let's say you want an agent, yeah. okay? And in your mind, you're picturing going to New York, the agent's taking you to meetings, you're having lunch at the Four Seasons with mm. your agent, blah, 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 blah. But your internal emotional state is, I don't have one, I'm never going to have one, I don't know how to get one, I don't deserve one, I don't have a big enough platform, blah, 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 blah. All of those thoughts cancel out all of your pretty pictures. So what I do is I take people on a guided meditation. It's what I call a feelingization. And we move from your head to your heart. And we drop into our heart and we go into a state of love and appreciation and gratitude in real present moment time. And we get into the state known as heart coherence. And when we're in the now moment of love and gratitude, it is in that place that we can drop in our desire so we can imagine what does it feel like to be in my heart and know that I now have an agent that is so excited about me and my writing and my book and my career and my future? And what does that feel like? And to be in a state of extreme gratitude, thank you, God, that I have this supportive agent who loves me and loves my work. When you are in that heart coherence, you are magnetizing that agent to you in the physical world. Whereas when you're in your head and you're fighting with yourself and you're carrying on about, oh, I've tried this and I've tried that and it doesn't work and it's never going to happen, yeah. all you get to be is right. You know? And the people who study personal growth have the hardest time with this. Yeah. Because they want to be right. Oh, I've taken a million courses and I've read a million books and I've listened to Esther Hicks and I've done this and I've done that. And they're in this major pity party. Yeah. And nothing comes out of that. It only comes out of gratitude. I've got Tim Grawl on the brain right now, y'all. He's got a new book out called Running Down a Dream. And he and Stephen Pressfield, author of The War of Art and many other bestsellers, They're coming on this podcast together in a few weeks to talk about their new books. You may know Tim as the author of your first thousand copies and as a book marketing superstar who helped five of his author clients hit on the New York Times bestseller list on the same day. So why the two together? Because Stephen Pressfield's publishing company, Black Irish Books, has just published Running Down a Dream, which is a big deal because Steve and his partner, Sean Coyne, rarely publish other authors. In our past chat for the BWG, Tim helped our members feel ease about the marketing process, in part by giving some of his best intel for putting your best foot forward on Amazon. We are big believers in buying local and buying indie. And depending on the stats you're looking at, anywhere from 40 to 65% of books are now sold on Amazon. So you do want to put your love there as well. To do that, Tim was explaining the importance of writing great descriptions and how if you're self-publishing, you're definitely going to want to put money behind getting a great cover design because people make split-second decisions about covers. He also talked about the importance of going on Amazon Central and filling out your author page. He explained how to dress it up by loading up your best photos and content and blurbs. In this snippet, He explains how and why you want to get as many Amazon reviews as possible on launch day and 
how to get those pesky one-star reviews removed. (laughs) Yeah. Do your best to get as many Amazon reviews early on as possible. And if you just search like how to launch with 25 Amazon reviews, my post will come up and it's a step-by-step. This is one of my longer posts. So again, I don't want to go super deep onto here, but it's step-by-step how to make sure that you launch with 25 reviews. Because if you get 25 good reviews up there the first day, that gives you a good chance of making sure people show up and they see that other people are reading your book and liking your book. One of the lesser known things about Amazon is a lot of times you can get one-star reviews removed from your book. I know. I Um, love hearing that. (laughs) Now, if somebody says, I read this book and I didn't like it and I gave it a one-star review, you can't do anything about that. But what you find is a whole lot of people leave one-star reviews for really dumb reasons. They'll say things like, (laughs) the box it was shipped in was damaged. Or they'll say, you know, this book was priced too high. Or the one that I have seen that is real is they'll review the author without reading the book. I've seen where people hate this certain author, and so they go on and they give a one-star review and say, I haven't read the book, but I hate this author. The Amazon review guidelines say only the book and the content of the book can be reviewed. Nothing else. Not the author, not the cover, not the box it came in. And so what I found is, if again, if you go through Author Central and you call them, You can cite the Amazon review guidelines, say, according to this point in the Amazon review guidelines, this review isn't allowed and tell them which one and just request that it be removed. And here's the thing. What they'll do is they'll submit it and they'll say, we'll let you know in 24 to 48 hours. And they're really good about actually letting you know in 24 to 48 hours. And here's what I found though. So I learned this trick when I got stuck in a snowstorm driving to the airport and I missed my flight. And so I need to get on the next flight. So I'm literally like sitting under a bridge in my car, like five in the morning, trying to call and get another flight. So I call and the guy's like, okay, the next plane, there's one seat available. It's going to cost you $1,100 for that seat. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. I already had a seat on. This is weather related. It's not like I was just running late. Right. And he's like, nope, it's $1,100. I'm like, oh, forget this. So I hung up. I called right back and got somebody else. And she gave me that same seat for free. And what I found is <laughs> in big companies, you can get different answers depending on who you talk to. Totally. And so if that person doesn't remove that one-star review, and again, it has to fit the guidelines. If it's just somebody that read the book and didn't like it, you're stuck. Yeah. But if it doesn't fit the guidelines and they say no, call back and get somebody else and try again. And I've done that before. And on the second try, I got it removed. Rhonda Britton and I have some kind of destiny together in this life. She had overcome one of the most treacherous childhoods you could imagine and was teaching her fearless living program in her living room when she figured I could help her write a book proposal. Why not? I'd just written one for myself and sold it, so I was qualified, right? (laughs) She sure paid better than the $12 an hour I was getting bagging groceries when I wasn't promoting my book. So Rhonda and I fearlessly pretended we knew what we were doing. And sure enough, she got a six-figure book deal after a four-day bidding war. And I got an editing and ghostwriting side hustle. That was many moons ago and books ago. And for her, Oprah Couches ago and an Emmy ago for her work on the show Starting Over. One of the things she did so masterfully as a life coach on Starting Over was to devise exercises for people. I saw her create thousands of them. It was shocking. 
But what I'm most happy about is that we're still family. When Ron came on the BWG, I thought I knew what she'd talk about, but she is always coming up with new tricks. And this one on getting over fear and connecting with your book is one of the coolest tips I have heard in a very long time. Two things come to mind. First one is if it's a novel, and this would be true for nonfiction as well, is I want them to have them write a letter from the character to them. Ooh. So like the nemesis, the hero, again, whoever you protagonist. want. Have them, okay. the, the protagonist, right? So have them write a letter from the protagonist to the writer to say like, thank, you know, basically, uh, you know, you're doing a great job. Thank you for writing my story. And, you know, Whoa. here, I'm going to tell you more. So just making it that it becomes more of a relationship rather than I'm doing this alone, remembering that the book is part and parcel writing itself through you. I think that's really, really important to know. If you're in fear or if you're getting stuck, you actually think that you're writing it and that you actually think that you have to come up with everything. And you actually think, right? Like you actually think that you're the one that's creating this world. And again, not that it wasn't a seed of an idea that you had, oh, by the way, given problems from God itself, right? Um, <laughs> but it's like, yes, you're the vehicle that sits down to write the book, and your mission is just to sit down and write the book. The book will move through you if you know that you are in tandem with it instead of thinking mm. you're the one that has to do everything. I think that's a lot of pressure, mm. and I think you actually create some sort of God-like feeling about yourself, and whenever <laughs> When any of us feel like God or any of us feel like, oh, it's ultimately my job. Oh, my God. I'm all these, you know, I freeze, too. Right? I freeze, too. I'll freeze, right. too. Right. So that's one. Two, whenever we're bumping against fear, it just means that we're embarking on something that's stretching us into the unknown. Hmm. So I really encourage you to really write the word gentle, 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 gentle all over your computer screen all over your notebook, on your mirror, gentle, gentle, gentle. Because the gentler you are, the more it's going to naturally happen. The more you push, you're going to be writing crap. And oh, by the way, writing crap is also a really good thing. I mean, if you think, again, I know that you've talked about this at nauseum, Linda, but if you think that every word out of your pen or out of your fingers is going to be brilliant, you're going to get afraid. You know, right. I would say most things are crap, right, when they come out, but it's that one sentence that comes out and you're like, that's it. And then you take that sentence and you build on the sentence. Just, uh-huh. just drop everything else uh-huh. and keep going. I want to share a short snippet from my BWG chat with Aditi Karana, who was my guest co-host last month for my call with best-selling novelist Rosie Walsh for her book, Ghosted. Aditi is prolific so talented that she writes best-selling novels in the time it takes me to, I don't know, paint a bathroom. She has one of the most exciting book deal stories for her first book, Mirror in the Sky, which we talked about on that show. For her beautiful writers group chat, she introduced us to the idea of literary scouts, which I had never heard of, but was part of the energy behind her getting her significant two-book deal with Penguin. In this snippet, we talk about how she is so prolific and how to train your muse while doing the hard work. One of the things that amazes me about you more than most any writer I know is your prolificness. I mean, you've got a couple of novels going right now. You've finished two others. I mean, you're insanely fast at bringing this through. And yet at the same time, 
your work ethic is profound as well. So can you talk about the difference between the and or of grit and channeling? (laughs) How's that for a question? Grit and channeling, girlfriend. It's it's such a fine line because I feel like the channeling comes when you have the grit. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like I think they sort of go hand in hand in the sense of I think I'm sure you've heard Elizabeth Gilbert tell the story about the muse with Tom Waits where he would get he'd be driving on like the five and bumper to bumper traffic and he'd get this amazing idea. And he's like, not now. No, right? And then he'd just be like, well, let me tell the muse, you know, I'm in my studio from like nine to two every day. So if you'd like to come join me there, that would be great, you know? (laughs) And eventually I feel like you have to train your muse. And I do think of like the muse as being, I think of all of these ideas just like floating around and they're trying to find us. And I think those really inspired bits are only going to come if you are willing to sort of sit down every day and just put in the work. And I think I was really lucky in that the work that I always did, I felt like I was, and I was fearful of just sitting down and writing a novel in my 20s. But I also think that I needed to train myself. You know, it's sort of like you can't really run a marathon by just running a marathon. You have to be training. And all those years of having to write every day on the job and not being too precious about it and not sort of like overthinking it has allowed me to kind of just sit down and write and not be too precious and know that I can always revise. I can always go back. But I think I just keep myself on a thousand word a day sort of diet where I'm like, I need to churn out about four pages a day and I can go back and fix it. But that's always my goal. And if you do that, in a few months, you can have a full manuscript. It may not be good. And my first drafts always need work, but it will be something. Thank you for sharing my birthday with me. I have had such a blast reliving these conversations. I hope you'll consider joining our BWG tribe. We would love to meet you. In fact, I want to send a shout out to one of the experts you'll find in our archives there. He's the host of the unmistakable podcast, Srinivas Rao. I just started reading his new book and it's packed with writing and success hacks. It's called An Audience of One, Reclaiming Creativity for Its Own Sake. Bravo, Srini. Okay, I'm off to Carmel next week. I've got one spot open for 2018. Maybe it's got your name on it. Otherwise, I just booked the beautiful La Playa Hotel in Carmel for the week of January 14th, 2019. God, that's going to be here before we know it. Kind of like birthdays. (laughs) Have a beautiful rest of your day, guys. Right on. Right on.